The first of my posts was called The Westerner. When I teach a work of literature to my students, I try to find poetry that reflects the same spirit or theme. For Shane, I often introduce them to The Westerner by Badger Clark. Badger Clark lived from 1883 to 1957. The website cowboypoetry.com tells the charming story that in Clark's correspondence with his mother, he, quote, found prose too weak to express his content and perpetrated his first verses, unquote. So she submitted them for publication to Pacific Monthly. In a preface to the collection Sun and Saddle Leather, editor Ruth Hill reports a compliment given by an old cowman who said, quote, You can break me if there's a dead poem in the book. I read the whole of it. Who in hell is this kid Clark anyway? I don't know how he knowed, but he knows. Unquote. She also quotes Clark's description of the cow country paradise he discovered near the Mexican border, where, quote, the sky was persistently blue, the sunlight was richly golden, the folds of the barren mountains and the wide reaches of the range were full of many lovely colors, and his nearest neighbor was eight miles away. The cowman who dropped in for a meal now and then appeared to have ridden directly out of books of adventure, with old young faces full of bad grammar, strange oaths, and stranger yarns, and hearts for the most part as open and shadowless as the country they daily ranged. Unquote. Clark and Schaefer seem like kindred literary spirits, with their admiration for great men making a new life in the promise and beauty of the frontier. Here's the Westerner. My fathers sleep on the sunrise plains, and each one sleeps alone. Their trails may dim to the grass and rains, for I choose to make my own. I lay proud claim to their blood and name, but I lean on no dead kin. My name is mine for the praise or scorn, and the world began when I was born, and the world is mine to win." They built high towns on their old log sills, where the great slow rivers gleamed. But with new, live rock from the savage hills, I'll build as they only dreamed. The smoke scarce dies where the trail camp lies, till the rails glint down the pass. The desert springs into fruit and wheat, and I lay the stones of a solid street over yesterday's untrod grass." I waste no thought on my neighbor's birth or the way he makes his prayer. I grant him a white man's room on earth if his game is only square. While he plays it straight, I'll call him mate. If he cheats, I drop him flat. Old class and rank are a worn-out lie, for all clean men are as good as I, and a king is only that." I dream no dreams of a nursemaid state that will spoon me out my food. A stout heart sings in the fray with fate, and the shock and sweat are good. From noon to noon, all the earthly boon that I ask my God to spare is a little daily bread in store, with the room to fight the strong for more, and the weak shall get their share. The sunrise plains are a tender haze, and the sunset seas are gray. But I stand here, where the bright skies blaze over me and the big today. 
What good to me is a vague maybe, or a mournful might have been? For the sun wheels swift from morn to morn, and the world began when I was born, and the world is mine to win. The next of my posts was called The One Man. Long ago, I thought of the idea of creating a series of books that are anthologies of literary scenes around a certain theme. They could make great gift books, like a collection of scenes about motherhood for a Mother's Day gift, and they could be a great way to introduce people to new works of literature. One of the themes would be friendship, and a centerpiece of that anthology would be the relationship between Joe and Shane. There are countless scenes from past chapters that could be included, and I'd love to hear your favorites, but I will focus on the moments in those from your last assignment. Shane and Joe's friendship is characterized by a mutual respect and an understanding so fundamental that there is often no necessity for words. When, after the conflict with Chris, Joe and Shane become more guarded and watchful, Joe begins always wearing his gun. We are told, quote, He strapped it on after breakfast the first morning following the fight with Chris, and I saw him catch Shane's eye with a questioning glance as he buckled the belt. But Shane shook his head, and Father nodded, accepting the decision, and they went out together without saying a word, unquote. Their understanding of each other is so instinctive that no words had to be exchanged to ask the question— and Joe's respect for and trust in Shane is so deep that no explanation was needed for the answer. The depth of intensity of their friendship is reflected in the intensity of Joe's response when he comes upon the scene of Shane being held and beaten by Fletcher's men. Bob recalls, quote, "'Nothing, I would have said, could have drawn my attention from those men. But I heard a kind of choking sob beside me, and it was queer and yet familiar, and it turned me instantly. Father was there in the entranceway. He was big and terrible. I had never seen father like this. He was past anger. He was filled with a fury that was shaking him almost beyond endurance." But among my very favorite scenes of all is the one in which Shane, the fiercely independent, wildly dangerous, and utterly self-sufficient man, lets Joe carry him like a child. Quote, The one man in our valley, the one man I believe in all the world, whose help he would take, not to whom he would turn, but whose help he would take, was there and ready. Father stepped to meet him and put out a big arm reaching for his shoulders. All right, Joe, Shane said, so softly I doubt whether the others in the room heard. His eyes closed, and he leaned against Father's arm, his body relaxing and his head dropping sideways. Father bent and fitted his other arm under Shane's knees and picked him up like he did me when I stayed up too late and got all drowsy and had to be carried to bed. That scene always leads to animated discussions with my students about why Shane would let Joe, and no one else, help him. We talk about the vulnerability of allowing someone to help you when you are a self-sufficient and self-respecting person. You have to trust that they know you well, and that they know your acceptance of help is not dependence. 
and you have to know that they are motivated by affection and respect, and not by pity. Schaefer is unafraid to give the relationship between these two very manly men an almost romantic tone. Theirs is a beautiful friendship. The last of my posts was called Man Enough to Know a Better. We knew that Shane and Marion had, against their wills, fallen in love, but we didn't know how Joe would react if he found out. Or maybe, given his unfailingly noble character, we did. When Marion breaks down sobbing after her irrepressible comment, did ever a woman have two such men? Both of them handle the situation with the utmost dignity. Shane puts his hand gently on her head, in a gesture of affection and sympathy appropriate to show another man's wife. And then, appropriately, he goes out into the night and leaves her with her husband. Joe, who for the first time is acknowledging openly that the woman who is the best thing that ever happened to him on God's green earth loves another man, does so in a manner meant to reassure and comfort her. He shows remarkable courage, confidence, understanding, and love when he tells her, quote, I'm man enough to know a better when his trail meets mine. Whatever happens will be all right, unquote. The thing is, I think in the very act of calling Shane his better, he is proving that in any way that really matters, he just isn't.